What is up people, I am Sam Matler and this is the EDM Podcast, a show where I talk to artists, producers, uh, people in the industry, label managers and mastering engineers and today I'm talking to a mastering engineer. His name is Nicholas DiLorenzo, Uh, he's a good friend of mine, we've talked a lot, Uh, I've been to his studio a couple of times and in this interview... Uh, we talk about some awesome stuff. We go quite deep into the, you know, what a mastering engineer does. And Nick's personal approach uh, to mastering is very philosophical and also pragmatic at the same time. We talk about why good mastering engineers should be good at communication, uh, why bad mastering is actually expensive. Uh, so all those people who offer you know, $5 for a master, uh, why that ends up being expensive in the long run. Uh, We talk about objective feedback versus subjective feedback, thoughts on the loudness war, uh, buying monitors and other gear, and also building a career in the music industry, which is always a a fun topic to talk about. Uh, Nick has got a degree in the... It's a degree in the music industry from RMIT uh, in Melbourne. So he's got some some cool uh, insight and wisdom to share on that. Now, before we get into the show, I have a simple request to make, and it's not uh, to leave a review on iTunes, though you can certainly do that if you please. My request is to hit me up on Twitter, at EdmProd, and let me know who you'd like me to interview on the podcast. Oh, sorry, the podcast. It can be an artist, producer, industry practitioner, you name it. I've got an ever-growing list of people and it's always good to add more names to the list. Uh, so if you know of someone, maybe it's a favorite artist of yours who you really want to learn from and you want to kind of pick their brain, let me know. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Anyway, without further ado, we're going to get into the show now and welcome Nicholas D. Lorenzo. This episode is brought to you by EDM Foundations. EDM Foundations is my course for new producers, those who've been producing for under 12 months or even those who've just started. The whole idea of the EDM Foundations course is that you learn the fundamentals of music production by actually doing and not just learning the theoretical stuff. The course consists of over 12 hours worth of streamable video where I walk you through the creation of three songs and give you advice and tips for working on your own original alongside them. We've had over 500 people sign up for this course. Many of them have had great results. If you want to learn more about the course, head over to edmfoundations.com. Nick, it's it's great to have you on and we've obviously talked a fair bit before and I consider you a good friend of mine, but for those who don't know who you are or what you do, could you give us a bit of a background? How did you get started with audio? Hey Sam, how are you? Um, I'm a mixing and mastering engineer based in Melbourne, Australia. Um, I work out of Panorama Mixing and Mastering. Uh, My prime roles as a mastering engineer Outside of actually mastering work and running sessions is administrating the everyday operations of my studio. Um, I consult and deal directly with clients, labels and artists, prepare session material, work through ideas and develop session briefs. So that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. Um, how did I get started with audio? Well, in high school, I got a 10-channel mixer to record my band because in high school, you, you really don't have budgets to go into recording studios or the time nonetheless, especially when studying for end of year. Um, and we achieved, you know, more, uh, humble results um, in audacity. Um, <laughs> and that sort of grew into other bands asking, hey, can you record, you know, our band, you know, around high school and around all the other high schools who heard it? And they were like, yeah, yeah, I'll help you. And then that sort of developed into a bit of a portfolio and, um through that, it sort of was, I, enga- I engaged really well in manipulating audio. 
So from the recordings I took, it was a very fun process to sort of hear a band play live and then have it in a computer and be able to manipulate that performance. Um, so that was where my passion started. From there, I studied music industry at RMIT and also took some audio electives. Um, during that time, I interned at uh, the Avery Recording Studio in Abbotsford, Melbourne. Um, and, you know, that exposed me to actual client client engineer relationships and developing skill sets in um, the field of recording um, and mixing. Uh, from there, I used that as a stepping stone to intern at Eden Sound Mastering in Baldwin, Melbourne. Um, and, from, and during that time, I was given opportunity to assist on sessions and eventually um, sort of build sort of like a mentor, mentorate sort of um, relationship with Martin Pullen, who's the owner and engineer over there. Um, mm. Again, you know, during that time, I really developed myself as an engineer. I had ample opportunities to work on in independent records and really big records. We, during that time, um, mixed the 40th anniversary for uh, Deep Purple uh, Made in Japan. Wow, yeah. Which was, you know, an insane experience just sitting in that room seeing all those performances come together. Um, I got opportunity to work with um, Ampex ATR tape machines um, for, uh, we did, I did the Jimmy, Bra Jimmy Barnes uh, freight train hut. So I uh, took all the tapes and put them into digital, did all the transfers for them. So, you know, that was real eye-opening experiences to go from, you know, kids at school recording, um, you know, just, just themselves in a garage with some SingStar microphones into a <laughs> Yamaha mixer and then, you know, five years later be sort of part of a team or engage in, in these experiences in bigger sessions for internationally renowned artists. Um, during that time, I was building my own studio. I was prepping up. I had some work coming in from friends and other industry contacts I'd made and um yeah, during that time I developed the studio I have today and um, yeah, it was a very, very quick transformative experience. I just um, was lucky to get or be in the right place at the right time, I guess, and have very important opportunities, very special opportunities for myself. Right, I see. And you're doing this full time nowadays in the studio five days a week. Monday to Friday gig. That's what I do Monday to Friday. Mm. That's, I do do a bit of coffee on the weekends because I... It's, it's sort of a, that's a, my second passion outside of the <laughs> studio, but um, Monday to Friday, uh, you'll find me in the studio slaving away or sometimes just uh, listening to mixes for three hours that, you know, people have sent in to get feedback on. Gotcha. Okay, cool, cool. So, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of confusion uh, surrounding mastering and also the role of the mastering engineer, someone like yourself, um, especially nowadays where... A lot of electronic music artists, at least, work completely in the box uh, by themselves. So, they don't have a team of people. It's just them. At its core, what do you think mastering is and what is the role of a mastering engineer? Okay. So, one, there's many descriptions for this, but there's one description for what is mastering. What is mastering? Mastering is taking your final set of mixes and creating a production master. And production master is what the public hear. Now, what is the role of a mastering engineer is how that process is facilitated. Now, that is something that everybody has an opinion on that changes from mastering engineer to mastering engineer. Because some, some, for some, that process is making it louder, brighter, punchier. For some, that is, you know, quality control, really getting technical and in the finicky. For me, what is the role of a mastering engineer is an is a com combination of all of that. Basically, for me, when someone sends me a set of mixes, when I'm consulting with the client, when I'm developing a brief, my main goal is to take exactly what that artist loves about that record and make sure that element, that essence of it gets presented to the public. That on the production master, it keeps its energy in the story that the artist is trying to tell. Um, 
And, you know, that's, that's what the essence and the role of a mastering engineer is to facilitate that transformation from a mix to a production master mm. and make sure that that artist's vision, that that client's requests, that that label's needs are commentated for through that process. And that changes from job to job. Because for some people, it's, I really want it loud and competitive. For some people, it's, you know, don't touch it. I just want to, you know, just give it a once-over. Hmm. Make sure there's nothing wrong, there's no dropouts, there's no distortion, there's no resonant frequencies, and I'm really happy with the mix. And it's for me to make sure that that gets translated across to every single listener, regardless of whether on headphones, in their car with twin subs, on a hi-fi system, or it's um, streaming on their laptop, or, or who knows. But it's that's my job, to get that from A to B. Right. And- I mean, you've talked to me a lot about how important it is uh, to talk with the client beforehand and you say, you know, a lot of, a big kind of portion of mastering is really communication. Um, Now, one reason that a lot of people avoid going to mastering engineers and a lot of bedroom producers are in this, this box where they think, you know, why would I send my music to a mastering engineer when it costs in your case, uh, $80 per master, I believe. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, seems seems like a lot to some people. Could you explain why good mastering is expensive and, and how you personally arrive at that price? And also a bit of the process that you go through uh, when someone comes to you with a song. All right. So I'm, I'm going to try and sound as little self-serving as I possibly can here. But I will say... What is ex- good mastering is expensive, I think, is the wrong statement to make. I think bad, bad mastering is expensive and good mastering is cheap. Okay. Okay? There's a few reasons. The engineers who really care have an invested interest in your product. Mm. So that, time, that money you spend on them is that time they spend, you know, consulting with you, prepping up session material. It's, it's payment for their experience. It's payment for, their, for, for what they do in day out and their investments into their craft. And that is actually invaluable. So the fact that it's 80 bucks or 100 bucks or 150 bucks at another studio is, is relatively cheap. Um, bad mastering is mastering that is expensive because you send it somewhere and you don't connect with the engineer. So when you're looking for mastering, the price, I believe, you shouldn't look at, regardless of whether you're looking at me, another engineer, or sterling mastering in you know, you know, the top of the range, mm. you have to look at the engineer and how they connect with your music and with you because that's the investment you're making it in, not necessarily the mastering service itself because I can go and I, 99.9% of the mastering engineers I know will do an amazing job. But how, they, how you connect with them and they connect with you is what you're paying for and that's what's the most important thing about a mastering service. So the first thing is the engineers has an invested interest in you, but then you have to listen to, you're developing a product. Now, whether that product's free, whether you're selling it as an album, whether you're streaming, whether it's pay what you want on Bandcamp, at the end of the day, there's an audience and a fan base that invest their time into it and their money. So you have to respect your audience to know I want to create a product and I want to get my product across to my audience. Whether it's a free stream on SoundCloud or they pay, you know, two bucks fifty a single, they're still investing their time and their money. And both should be valued equally. I don't believe that a paid product should be valued more than what a free stream product is. Because at the end of the day, your your audience goes actively goes to your site, clicks play, listens, and for you that's an investment of their time in your product. And yes, you're providing them with a service of music and an experience that you're trying to get out there, but equally they're investing their time and, you know, their their efforts into your music. And then if they like it, they share it. And for me, that that's something that's insanely valuable. I don't think I every project to me is is exactly the same, is is it of all equal value, regardless of whether it's going to chart on the Arias or whether it's just a free stream. There's still people out there investing their time and you have to value that. Um, and I think you also said, what, what was the last part of that question? I, I missed that. The, the process that you go through, for example, if I'm 
looking for mastering and I come across you yep. uh, and I email you, uh, what happens from then? Like what, what happens from that point forward until the end result where I get my, my master back? So my, my first thing is communication, 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 as you know. Mm. So I'll, if they send me a track, I'll listen to it. Now, my thing is there's two kinds of feedback you give. There's objective and there's subjective. Now, for me, I don't like to affect any mixed decisions or any creative decisions an artist makes because mm. that is something they can make. They, they have the vision to make. I don't have their vision. They've put together a piece of music or a mix and you have to respect that. So those are subjective feedback which I'll rarely ever give unless I'm very, very close with someone and I know, you know, I've worked with them hundreds of times and I know exactly what they're after. Objective feedback is things like sibilance, dropouts, clips, bad edits. Um, it's being slammed on the master. There's distortion. There's, there's something going wrong technically, which is black and white and is like day and light and I can go to them. That's the sort of feedback I can give to you. So basically they'll send me through. I'll give them objective feedback and then go, where are you trying to take this? Because most of the time it's, I'm looking at getting this track mastered um, you know, what's the best way to accommodate this process. And then, so I always try and get out of them where they're trying to take it. And usually they give me references, they discuss what they've done. And what I try and get engaged in is what they like about their mix. Cause a lot of them are easily to go, I don't like my mix or I really don't like this or I don't like that. But that doesn't, that, that sort of becomes a fixing game in mastering. And that's a compromise approach, which I don't really, agree with i'd try and hone in on what they're enjoying about their music and how we can embellish that and work as a team towards generating a feel for the listener through that through those assets in the mix so you know it's it's a bit of investigative investigative work just sort of prying a bit of information out of them discussing um and then once we sort of settled on what we have and where we're going to take it i'll assess myself you know how feasible is it to get there? Because sometimes, as we know, not everyone's the best mixing engineer. Mm. Um, sometimes productions aren't on point and everybody's at different levels of their production stage. So you have to be very respectful of that and be honest. So nine times out of ten, we were able to accommodate and take um, the music from point A to point B. Um, for the one out of ten times where someone doesn't have it quite right for where they're trying to go, I'll be upright and honest with them and I'll go, look, this is where you are and this is where you're trying to go. I can take it this far, but these are some ways and routes we can look at exploring to get us to that final product you're after. Right, I see. Uh, now, you, you mentioned mastering. You don't like mastering as kind of a, a fixing process because it's a compromise. Can you elaborate on that? Why is it a, a compromise? Well, at the end of the fixing is a compromise because you're not getting the most out of the audio. You're better mm. off to fix it, fix it in the mix, not fix it in mastering. And in fact, you're better to fix it in the production, in the recording before you start fixing anything in the mix. Um, basically, the compromise happens because I work with a stereo.wav, so or it's a lossless stereo file. So. If I'm trying to, let's say the bass isn't loud enough but the kick drum's loud enough and I'm trying to pull the bass out of it, well, then other elements in that frequency range are going to be compromised for the sake of getting the bass louder. Or if there's a vocal that's a bit buried and there's a punchy snare right through it, you know, there's, there's a real balancing act. And yes, you know, I'm not trying to... I, I'm, not trying to say you should always take the lazy way out and just, you know, keep requesting um, mixes to be fixed and fixed, but you have to be honest with the client and go, this is how far we can take it with what we've got. These are the elements, you know, that, you know, aren't quite working in your mix. Um, you know, let's explore some options or if, you, and then there's that other level where I have to be very respectful of where they've taken it because sometimes where they've taken it is where they're happy with and, um, again, I can't impose too much subjectivity on that and be affecting their creative flow. So, you know, compromise in mastering is something you want to sort of avoid. And also loudness, that compromises 
a lot of depth, dynamic punch and clarity in the mix when people start asking for, you know, negative 3 dB RMS or negative 4, which is achievable and you can still get loud, punchy masters, but there's a certain trade-off there and you gotta, you're got always going to have an honest, open dialogue with your clients and um, be 100% open with them because there's no point sort of bullshitting them because at the end of the day, the product they're going to get, they've got ears as well. You know, they can hear what's going on. You mentioned loudness though. I mean, this is... This is a controversial topic and I know that you get it all the time uh, and in fact I asked you I, I think the first time we met in October last year but what are your thoughts on the loudness war? Um, at the moment? Mm, at the moment. Because it's always evolving, it's always something new. <laughs> For me I'm not, I'm not too bothered with it. I think as I said loudness is a part of mastering which some styles need. There's a certain intimacy that loudness can bring to a track. There's a certain forwardness um, that it can bring to a track that when something's really squashed and held down like that, it can it can embellish a track. But in the same respect, you have to you have to have the right context to do it. You can't just be slamming every master and thinking that it sounds better because it's louder. It's really yeah. There's a lot of factors. The loudness wars. Um, over i don't really factor it in because for me when someone listens to a song they're not listening to whether it's negative four or negative six db rms they're listening to the music so my 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 invested interest in my clients is making sure that when someone listens to the music they're listening to the music and not the volume but i mean surely there are times there, there have been tracks that i've listened to and they're extremely well composed extremely well mixed uh, but there are just certain points in the track where it's so loud that it's it's clipping and the clipping doesn't sound good uh, and it kind of ruins the track, at least for me. Mm. So I thought, and I, I'm sure a lot of people kind of side with this, like there was a point where it was getting well well out of hand in terms of loudness and people were sacrificing audio quality for... Um, for loudness which was quite unfortunate so do you think that's kind of of dying off now there's not as much of a push for loudness or um you listen to any armado or spinning records track and they still do it yeah that's true and i always get references from them and you know what i that that push i reckon is dying down and i think if for any listeners out here this is a really good test take an armado or spinning records master um, and level match to the mix you're doing mm. and it it's like night and day I've so many times if they've if I've got an armada or spinning records reference in my session I'll level match it and you you can't com- you, the, the dynamics in in the labels masters is zero to none and it's just it's more a sales sort of thing and something they've gotten into just to sort of make that initial impact and move along to the next it sort of cheapens the music in a way um look anyone listening who's thinking about loudness or i've even seen on the forums um even in the edm prod one um people getting concerned about loudness levels or you know i'm trying to achieve this and for me if you're an artist if you're a musician and you're trying to communicate with an audience and you have a good set of ideas down don't worry yourselves about it. Mm-hmm. Just if you're doing self-mastering or whatnot, just do your best to represent your music with, you know, just represent it really well. Don't go yeah. to slam it. Just try and get your ideas out there and across and people will appreciate that a lot more. Like, have you, do you know of AC Slater? Uh, no, I don't. Man, I was doing a deep power session probably a fortnight ago. Mm. And someone gave me his references, and then they're not the references he gave me. The tracks he gave me weren't slammed or loud. They, they had a lot of movement and dynamic in them, and I was like, "Cool, you know, mm. this is this is what music's about." There's, you know, Dead Mouse. Um, I haven't listened to many of his masters and sort of assessed them, but I recall reading um, one of his statements saying, "You know, if it's not loud enough, turn the turn the volume up." Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, you know, that's that's true. You know, like if someone wants to listen to something loud, they're going to fucking slam it up. <laughs> if it's good music, 
you know, you're going to make sure you make that presentation really nice. And that to me is more important than the overall volume. Right. Very well said. Um, let's talk about gear for a moment. Yeah. I've been to your studio. You've got some, some really nice outboard gear. Uh, but how significant a role does that gear play in the mixing and mastering process? Okay. So significant a role for me, for me, my gear is sort of almost an extension of myself. Wow. You know, okay. I've heard every, I've trialed five, six different compressors, six, seven different EQs, you know, the works with converters. I've got another EQ being built because I went through very, tough selection process and had a certain connection with these pieces. My gear is an extension of myself in the mastering process. To me, it is important. That said, the gear does not make my decisions. Mm. That said, if you put me behind this desk five years ago, the gear wouldn't have made a difference. Mm. It's purely what my ears are telling me and the decisions I make from that. So, for me, for me personally, I have a very intimate connection with my gear and the way I work in a session. However, it is not it is not the essence of what a mastering or your mastering rig or equipment should be. If that makes any sense, if if you're following does, what I'm saying does. here. So basically what I'm saying is when in order there's a certain gear lust people have. Mm. Okay? There's a certain gear lust people have, especially in electronic music, to get, you know, X and Y, Z piece of hardware equipment or this interface or these speakers. And the matter of the fact is it's usually done, you know, behind marketing or retail hype or who's using it at the moment. And yeah, yeah. That's, that isn't going to help you. I guarantee you can put as much money into it as you want, but just purely off image and marketing and what other people are using you're never ever going to get better results you've to actually get- just just to interrupt <laughs> i remember you wrote a post i think on on how that had become so ridiculous there was a usb cable or yeah. something selling for a thousand dollars yeah exactly <laughs> it's it's crazy what this is let, i'll give you a general example on um gear purchases that a lot of people consult with me with and that's speakers mm. they go what speaker should i get Um, Is this a good model? Is that a good model? How will this sound? The first thing is test the speakers in your own room. Now, for some companies and some retail outlets, that can be a bit funny. They're a bit funny about that. But at the end of the day, if you're spending over $1,000 on a company's um, product, well, yeah, they should be able to put it to the test and, you know, put their money where their mouth is and they should be able to impress you in your room. Do you know what I mean? Like, you have to listen to them how they sound in your room. And regardless of the price, you have to connect with those speakers. If what you're hearing resonates with you and you put a track in there that you know like the back of your hand and it's representing it really well, like the way you know it, well, then they're the speakers for you. But you can, I can guarantee you can go out and spend four grand on a set of speakers and they not be the right set for you and you, can, you might be able to get a set for 400 and they work perfect. Do you think some people uh, get too worry themselves or concern themselves too much with with getting flat speakers? So what I mean by that is like I, I've got uh, Behringer Truths, and yeah. the low end on them is not fantastic, and there's like a little bit of a dip um, in the low mids, and I know that because I spent years working with them. They're not mm. flat. But I feel like that kind of doesn't really matter now that I know my speakers. I mean, mm. all I see on, on the internet is people saying, I oh, don't get those speakers because they're not flat. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, it's very interesting. I think people should go for a system that's accurate and mm. that they connect with at the same time. Okay, because you can't be getting systems that are disproportionate and not no, representing no. your information properly. That said, in the 21st century, okay, mm. where um, acoustic research and the level of information and resource there, that, that there are out there available for speaker manufacturing companies, most of what you see on the market in the pro audio community 
probably above four or five hundred bucks mm. is all much of a muchness. They're all in the same ballpark and there's no real there's not much variance that is it's tolerable variance, yeah. if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, head back into the eighties or nineties when there was some of the weirdest speaker designs being developed. Excuse me one moment. Um was speakers being developed. Yeah, you know, back in the 90s, you, could, you had some pretty horrible designs. And even in the early 2000s, there were some pretty um, horrible speaker designs out there. Mm. But in this day and age, you know, speaker research and development's at a point where there's tolerable variance between most models and the translation's relatively accurate for what you pay for. Um, so on the terms of flat speakers, like, I reckon you should be going for accuracy, but you still have to be connecting with what you hear. But, you know, that said, most of what's on the market isn't going to be giving you misinformation. So what do you mean by by connecting with what you hear? I mean, because well, to me, that's kind of, that's hard to understand. Okay. Well, okay, let me get, uh, so let's, let's say, let's say speaker model like the Amphians. Have you heard of the Amphians? Uh, can't say I have. Okay. Amazing company. They produce amazing speakers, um, some of the best in their price range. Absolutely stunning. Okay. However, you know, I'm, I'm, if I might be wrong here, but if I recall correctly, they, um, their frequency response is only down to 45 hertz. But everything above that is pristine and absolutely detailed and has some beautiful musicality to it. Now, if you're a deep house producer or a track producer who has lots of sub and bottom end in their track, you're not going to connect with those speakers, are you? So, you know, despite being amazingly accurate, they're not going to they're not going to work for you quite nicely. Whereas a speaker like a set of KRKs, which tend to have a bit of a exaggerated bottom end in a way, you know, they're, they're still relatively accurate in some means, but at least you'll get that bottom end and you'll be able to produce on them feeling what you're doing down low. It's, it's very hard. It's a very personal thing, I think, speaker selection. You'll even know by me, when I built my studio, I kept my same speakers I was mixing on and I'm only now just sort of made the decision after extensive testing to get a new set, to, to get a new pair. So it's a very personal thing and you know, I think when people actually listen to different sets and A, B them, they will understand. Yeah, yeah. So, it's more of like a, um, like an intrinsic feeling. Yeah. Because I'll, I'll give you an example. I've tested four sets of new speakers in my studio Yeah. over the last six months, ranging from five to 20,000 K, and they were all blind tested. So, it's not like I was sort of switching between them knowing which set was what. It was completely blind. And for me, I, I connected with a pair that was about 7500 compared to the more expensive models, just simply because there was a certain sense of width and clarity that I enjoyed about them um, in the low mids. And for me, that, that was a sale. That was like, I really like what they're doing there. That's what I think, you know, really connects with me. And when people listen to different sets of speakers, I'll get that. The other thing is to not fall into the trap of um, louder is better. Mm. Make sure you're, you, when you test them, they're level match because I know many people who go into like a, a store and the salesman will be flicking between them and one will be cranked way louder. And it's uh. like, whoa, <laughs> you know, that sounds so much better. And it's like, well, man, not really. It's, um, yeah, because there's that, there's that, um, there's that aco- uh, acoustic chair, I forgot what it's called, but even if something is one or two dB louder, which normally you can't really notice, like you can't point it out, um, it, it makes a huge difference and you perceive that as sounding better. That's what yeah. I've heard. Yeah, because you're feeling more of the energy. Yeah, no, you that, makes, that more, makes a lot of sense. More of the detail, there's more transient information there for you to latch onto. So it's, um, it's a bit deceiving. So look, we'll, we'll come back in a roundabout way gear for people, you have to connect with it. It has to have some embellishment and some effect on your workflow. If you're looking at an interface, why are you looking at that interface? What does it offer for you? What features does it have that implement into your workspace? 
you know, mm, with mm. everything you, whether it's a MIDI keyboard, whatever, the gear is only as important as it is to the role it plays to you. Because, mm. yeah, I, I think it's very important people understand that. It's, it's just something I try and sort of iterate time after time. Get gear that you need, not you want, because mm. this sort of want process sort of, trust me, I've done it and it's an expensive process. I've bought 24-channel mixers, um, which are actually now is just a, a big dust collector and takes up a huge <laughs> space in my bedroom. I've got a big 24-channel mixer in there, which I don't use anymore, um, just simply because it's not part of my work- workflow. And I've bought, you know, I've got the API EQE in here in the studio and I was, it was sort of cool when I was tracking, but now I'm doing lots of mastering. It sort of just doesn't fit my flow and I'm not really, you know, it's, it can become an expensive process if you don't get the right, the stuff that connects with you. So, you know, you know, don't have to rush into it. Um, the gear won't make you any better of a musician or any better of a producer. It'll just embellish your process if you pick the right stuff. That's that's really good advice. I think a lot of people need to hear that. Um, now, what's what's your worst nightmare when it comes to a mixing or mastering session? My worst? When it comes to the session? Yeah. Um, or actually well, just in general. I mean, are there any things that you're kind of like, oh, my goodness. Why is this happening? No, I think I think my worst nightmare already happened. Um, my word clock went out the first few months when I was on one of my converters in my sessions. So a couple of months after opening the studio, like my four thousand dollar converter, the word clock had sort of um, went a bit funny on it. So that was a pretty big nightmare because it was in a, a big album session that someone had booked, and my jitters—it's just fucking jittering everywhere. And I'm like. <laughs> Oh, whoops! What the fuck's going? On? That that that's my worst nightmare already done. And now every day I get into the studio, like I am really conscious of of my word clock going out, which people probably think is really weird. But um, that's probably my worst nightmare. Everything else, look, I don't, I never set myself up for a bad nightmare. Mm-hmm. When it comes to setting up sessions or consulting with clients or sussing out whether someone's a right working um, partner for me or whether we're really compatible and we're going to do some good work in the studio. Uh, I'm a pretty good judge of character and I haven't come across any nightmares or can't think of any that would um, sort of impose themselves on me. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. I just wanted to see if you had any uh, horror stories, but I suppose that is one. Um, yeah. Oh, I do. I do. Um, when I, I was actually mixing a record, I won't say the name of the studio, but I was mixing a record for someone and I don't know why, but, Whenever one channel would get engaged, the fire alarm would go off. What? Yeah, so there was one <laughs> channel on this. It was like a big, um, huge Neve console. And yeah. whenever this one channel um, would have audio pass through it, um, the fire alarm would go off every time. <laughs> and I, and I, it was just such an anomaly and I couldn't figure out why. And you know what the funny thing was? I, you know, me being not the most sharpest tool in the shed, I kept putting audio down that channel just to see if it kept doing it so that was a pretty embarrassing moment and it was it just became a sort of like a session joke that everybody just sort of laughed along at yeah but um it was i i have no idea what caused it It, or i i really can't really can't put anything that's so strange it was absolutely there was there was no connection between the console and the fire alarm system and it happened it happened more than once it wasn't just a coincidence no it happened more than once (laughs) happened more than once and i was like oh Okay. All right. But yeah, no, it was really weird. I don't know what was causing it at all. I don't know what I, who knows, I might have on the patch bay patched the fucking fire alarm into that (laughs) channel. I don't bloody know. It just, it was extremely odd. So I have no idea what caused that was a, that wasn't a nightmare. That was just sort of like a, it wasn't even scary. It was just fucking hilarious. But um, (laughs) yeah. (sighs) Oh, wow. Um, Now, a lot of people listening to this will, be bedroom producers who who master their own work or at least attempt to and i don't mean to be condescending but uh, i mean some some of these people don't know what they're doing but what are some common mistakes you see people make when mastering their own work um see when you come into a a new studio a new environment a new space not one time has someone brought this because often people bring their own masters into sessions to a b with what i'm doing and the first thing they do is, wow, I didn't hear that. Wow, I didn't hear that. Why is that doing that? 
the thing is, me, I'm not trying to sound condescending either, but people just don't have the environment there. Um, experience is something that's, especially amongst electronic producers, is from beginner to advanced. There's a lot of different sort of um, experience level. So some people do have the experience there to master their own records, but the environment and understanding of what's going on in your mix and the effects of, you know, bus compression and certain certain processes, the knowledge isn't there. And they can't hear what they're doing or what they've done until it's already out in the public. And, you know, that's, that's their sort of undoing. I, I can give credit to a lot of people who do relatively, really, you know, humble masters, which get the point across really nicely. If you've listened to Levi Wallen's um, latest record, it was a me and you he just released yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm under the assumption he did that himself and it was, it was, it was very, it was very nice in terms of to listen to mm. as a master. It was um, as well balanced. There wasn't anything over the top going on and it felt like he had a good handle on it. But um, there's some other, you know, producers who sort of don't, have that experience. Levi's been doing it for how many years has he been producing for? Oh, at least a decade. A decade. So he knows his music. He knows his space. He knows, you know, how to get it out there to his listeners. But a lot of people just starting out don't really have that. Just, just haven't gotten to that point yet. And even then, when you do get to that point, there's just, as I said before, there's a certain um, added value that coming to a mastering studio has, which isn't accessible to the everyday producer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I want to switch gears for a moment. You've yep. you've done a music industry degree at uh, RMIT. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, what did you learn and, and why did you do it? Okay. Um, why did I do it? I, I, I did it because I wasn't... It was a Bachelor of Arts, so it was an academic degree. Uh, as in, it wasn't uh, hands-on, it was more academic work. Yeah, and that's yeah. something I connected with more at the time. So it's something I saw out of my options. I had TAFE options and, you know, your SAE schools and JMC mm, schools, mm. which is sort of a bit more hands-on. But I tended to connect with a bit more of the academics side of the music industry. So that's why I chose it. It's part of the School of Media and Communication. Um, it was really cool because um, a lot of the modules and whatnot we had teachers who you know specialized in marketing or you know business and it was really it was really insightful into the whole the whole industry so that's why i I chose it mainly it wasn't really because of my passion with audio um it was sort of because my passion with audio has already been developed in my own time um with opportunities with other studios and i just really wanted to sort of you know get some knowledge and and learn something new about the industry that I didn't already know. And that was a good experience because I had the opportunity to connect with a lot of people, from people who are passionate about engineering to I went to school with people and now they're working in um, A&R for Sony. And, you know, like I, I was able to, you know, get really cool contacts, have good experiences with people who um, are now relatively active in this industry, working either as performers, engineers, A&R, management, you name it, they're there. Um, what I learnt, um, the first thing, the first modules that I learned because of School of Media Communication was mainly focused around social media and um, sort of that dynamic and the way that music connects and is represented in the online world with people because that's basically, as musicians, we perform onto a media and that media is music and how that connects with people is um, very important. So, you know, that's that first year of study was very focused around, um, you know, online communication, did some a lot of business studies, um, the other cool opportunities we had was there was um, they had marketing seminars every week with um, marketing, you know, people working in marketing and head of marketing, which we got to discuss with. Um, got to learn about publishing labels. You know, there, there was a lot I learned there. I did learn. I did do some um, courses in audio and audio engineering, but the most where I garnered the 
the newest knowledge and what was new to my vocabulary was mainly in the business practices and industry side of um, music. Right, right. I see. Uh, we've we've talked a bit about working in the music industry before, and I know you really wanted to to give advice on this. Um, so, so for someone listening to this who wants to enter into the industry, either as an artist or engineer, or even just you know. A, a business person say a manager or a booking agent um what advice would you give to them okay so whether you're artist an engineer you're looking to start your own label you want to do journalism in this industry um it's important you see a value to yourself that's number one you have to see value in what you're bringing to the market and assess that value and Treat yourself, see, this is treat yourself somewhat like a business. What I tell people when they're looking to, you know, sort of really make a career out of music or really make a career out of what they do in this industry is do all the groundwork first, all the business stuff, all your, all, all your um, income streams and income flow and all that, get it set up from the start. Have, know you have a plan, have it all laid out for you because for me, what's kept me going is the fact I don't have to deal with any of that. I spent six months before I opened my studio setting up my business plan, feasibility study, and figuring out exactly how I'm going to make this work. And I went over it and went through it like a fine-tooth comb. So now when I work, my only thing that I have to do that's administrative is hand out an invoice before the session starts. And it is, as an artist or engineer looking to get into this industry, you have to figure out your value and figure out how you can make it sustainable. So. I'll just give out ideas. Um, as an artist, how many ideas would you go through, Sam, say in about a month if you were producing quite vigorously? How many ideas Ooh, would you go through and scrap? Uh, oh, that's, a, that's a tough question. Upward of, upwards of 20. Okay, upwards of 20. Of those 20, how many would be relatively useful to other people? Uh, two to five. Two to five, okay. Two to five let's say you take two to five of those ideas um, and over three months you can have a sample pack of about 10, 15 um, elements that you can send off into the market. Mm, mm. So your invested time into that wasn't wasted. Mm. You're still able to capitalize on it. You know, you can do that with everything. Um, music you don't release, how many tracks do you have that you don't release? Oh, um. <laughs> I, I don't want to think about that, to be okay. honest. Um, you know, sync, de sync deals and commercial music or working with um, video game editors, working with videographers and giving them a catalogue of work to choose from and setting up contracts with them. All these things that external income streams, which the public aren't going to see is your work, but at least your, your invested time is giving you some return outside of your music. So, look, those are just general ideas. Those are just me spitballing some bullshit off the top of my tongue just sort of to get ideas flowing. But for anyone listening, think about the time you put into your, your craft, think about what you what the result of it is, and think of how is that of value to the market? How can you fit yourself in so you can do what you love so and still sustain yourself? Mm -hmm. That's that's fantastic advice. Yeah. Um, now, okay, we're, we're on to these quick fire questions. So okay. there's just a few of them. What was your last audio-related purchase? Um, that would be the Barry Porter Winston Stereo Q I've commissioned, which is getting built at the moment. Ah, yes. Yes, of course. Nice. Um, you're an avid coffee drinker. I mean, you're Italian and it, it kind of goes hand in hand with everything you do. What kind of coffee should aspiring audio engineers drink? Um, you know, my studio, I have the stovetop. I have the Bialetti Mocha one. So that's um, the cafeteria one. The brand's Bialetti, and you can get it for about 35 bucks on eBay, I reckon. Okay, cool. It's relatively cheap. I'll chuck that in the uh, the show notes. Yeah, you should. That's <laughs> probably the most valuable thing anyone's going to get from this. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the best piece of advice someone's given you in relation to audio engineering? Uh, use your ears, not your eyes. Yes, common one, but, but very important. Yeah. Uh... If you were to go back 10 years and you were doing this all over again, what would you do differently, if anything? Oh, wow. Um, 
<sighs> I probably wouldn't have been such. I know when I started out, I was a bit, um, a bit of a know it all, a bit obnoxious. Mm. So I probably would have toned it down, and I probably would have got a lot more information, a lot more knowledge out of some of my peers that I started working with. So yeah, that'd probably be a bit. When I started out, as everyone is, they always think they're a little bit cocky. They have yeah, a bit of an yeah, ego. Yeah. Um, I probably would have toned that down quite a bit had I known how valuable some of my um, mentors were. And now, now they now I I do see and I do get to connect with them on a certain level, which I wish I could have, you know, ten years ago. Gotcha. And and finally, are there any books or resources that you recommend listeners check out? If they're interested in this stuff, um, so the first, the very first book I read um, with anything audio related was "Mixing with Your Mind" by Mike Stavro. Mm. Um, the next one would be "Mastering Audio" by Bob Katz. And the amazing thing about his stuff is, from the first to second to third edition, all the editions are relative to the technology of that time. Mm. Um, Your mix sucks. I think that's Mozart, Mark Mozart's one. Okay. And Zen and the Art of Recording by Mixerman. Cool. And those those would be my four to definitely. Uh, you should read them all, and you'll mm, be very mm. appreciative of it. Mm, I <laughs> I have to admit I haven't read. Uh no, I think I've read Mixing with Your Mind, but other than that, uh, it looks like I've got some some reading to do. Well, you do. fantastic, Nick. Thanks heaps for coming on. Uh, where can people learn more about you online? Um, so probably the first place to hit me up would be on the studio's Facebook page. Um, and you can contact me directly there at facebook.com forward slash panorama mastering, or feel free to directly email me at nicholas at panorama mastering.com.au. Um, and I'm open to any questions, any discussion you have relating to this podcast or just any audio talk you have in general. I'm, I'm willing to help answer your questions and sort of, you know, make a thing of it and see see how I can help you and how you can get forward just through some nice, you know, friendly discussion. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. It's been a fantastic discussion uh, and I'll see you later. No worries. Take care. Everybody jump in.